When you think about Christmas, what do you think about? Go ahead and tell the person next to you, right? So when you think about Christmas, what do you think about? How many of you said Santa Claus? Any kids say Santa Claus? I got one hand over there. All right, good job. Um, How many of you said family? When I say family, Um, how many of you said the birth of Christ? Yeah, that's good. Good job. A plus for you. Um, How many of you said a Christmas tree or decorations or something like that? Yeah, Uh, a lot of moms just raised their hand. Uh, um, But Christmas brings in a lot of things, okay? I know for me, I think about, like, like, and some of you may have said, like, a family member or a person. Uh, For me, I think about the Reese family. So I grew up in Quero, Texas, about three hours from here. And um, I became a believer when I was in high school. None of my family were believers, and so I would go to church by myself, and there was about two or three families that kind of adopted me as their own. And the Reese family specifically would invite me to Christmas Eve every year. It was so gracious of them. They would invite me to Christmas Eve, and we would eat tamales, right, around their big table. Um, Then we would go into the living room, and they would pull out these glass Coke bottles. I still don't know why, right? But they would pull out these glass Coke bottles, and they would read the Christmas story together. So I think about them. Um, There's a lot of joy when I think about that. And a lot of the things that you said were joyous, but the reality is some of you, including me, probably think about Christmas as a harder time of year because maybe you've lost a family member. Or something has happened around Christmas time that, that does not bring feelings of joy. My, both my parents have passed away, and it always seems to sting a little bit more around Christmas. Now, how many of you think about just the busyness of the Christmas season? You've got 18 million family members who do 18 million different parties. I see a kid raising their hand over there. Um, but some of you think about busyness. So for the next few weeks, I want to slow us down and really think about Christmas. Because the reality is that the God of the heavens and the earth has come. Think about that. Let that sink in. The God of the heavens and the earth has come. Put on flesh. This is, this is insane. This is a story that has, will be told for the ages. He came to us. And so today we're going to start this series by looking at Matthew 1. We're going to be going all the way through to Matthew 2 because here's the big idea. The hope is that we as a faith family will be able to experience God's presence together in this season. So that when you go home to your million different parties and your family members or to your hurts, that you will be able to sit and remember the presence of God, that he has come. So we're going to be in Matthew 1, verses 1 through 17. Um, Yes, that is the genealogy of Jesus. And I was really excited when Matthew called me and told me to preach because I was like, oh yeah, this text is awesome. And then I started to read it and realized that I could not pronounce the names, right? And so I want before, after the service, when you come up to me and you're like, hey, you said that name wrong, I just want you to know I know, okay? Um, Like, I'm prepared for that conversation. I've already acknowledged it, but I'm going to do my best. So let's read this text together. Matthew 1, starting in verse 1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez the father of Hezron, and Hezron the father of Ram, and Ram the father of Amminadab, and Amminadab the father of Nashon, and Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed, and Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king. And David was the father of Solomon by the wife Uriah, and Solomon the father of Rehoboam, and Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asaph, and Asaph the father of, this is one of the hardest ones, Jehoshaphat, and Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, and Uzziah the father of Yotham, and Yotham the father of, the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, and Manasseh the father of Amos, and Amos the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah, and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. And after the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Sheatiel. And Sheatiel was the father of, and this is my favorite name, Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel was the father of Abiad. And Abiad was the father of Elikim. And Elikim, the father of Azor. And Azor, the father of Zadok. And Zadok, the father of Akim. And Akim, the father of Iliad. And Iliad, the father of Eleazar. And Eleazar, the father of Matan. And Matan, the father of Jacob. And Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom Jesus was born, who is called Christ. So, all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. And from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. So, I know what some of you are thinking. You're like, okay, you talked it up, you tried. But Colton, it's a list of names, and names I can't even pronounce. This is going to be boring. This is going to be terrible. I'm glad football is coming later, right? Well, I want to hold the brakes for you and ask you to trust me. This text is not boring, and it is not irrelevant, okay? This text is history-making, life-changing, right? It brilliantly reveals who God is, what he's like, and how he is accomplishing his purpose. Here's what it reveals if you want a big picture, okay? Nothing can stop God's purpose. Absolutely nothing. Today's, the topic of of today's sermon is Christmas, colon, God's relentless purpose. I want to show you God's purposes throughout the history of everything and have our hearts changed by it. So it starts with context, okay? Uh, Let me give you a little bit of context from the Old Testament that's going to make Matthew 1 shine a lot brighter. We have to look at what has happened in the Old Testament. And this is going to be a very short overview over a thousand pages, okay? The story begins with Adam and Eve in the garden. And when you hear garden, don't think grandma's backyard, think paradise, right? Shalom, place of perfection, place of peace. And then in Genesis 3, the serpent comes to Eve, and for the first time, sin is introduced into humanity, bringing like it a virus that completely breaks a computer. Everything is broken. And then Genesis 3.15 comes. I don't know if you've ever read this verse. This is what we call the first gospel, the first 
gospel. God says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is the first moment in the scriptures that God points us towards redemption, that points us towards Christ. And it's centered on the offspring of Eve, tracing all the way back and all the way forward, ultimately to Jesus. And throughout the rest of the Old Testament, we see the unfolding plan of God, okay? Now, here's the deal. It's not a collection of stories, the Old Testament. Like, if you only spent your life watching VeggieTales, and that's about the length of your knowledge of the Old Testament goes, I just want to tell you to stop, okay? It's much more than a collection of stories. There is a thread in the Old Testament, a thread that leads all the way to Jesus. It is purposeful. It is strategic. And it communicates something about our God, that he has had a purpose since day one. So God comes to Abraham in Genesis 12, and he says, Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, here's the question. How will all the families of the earth be blessed? Through Jesus. Because all of this, remember, is pointing and leading to Jesus. Then God reminds Abraham again in Genesis 22. He says, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies. And in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That same line, that same lineage leads to David, King David. In 2 Samuel 7, uh, God says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. This is bigger than Solomon, okay? How is David's kingdom going to reign forever? David isn't with us. Solomon isn't with us because there is a line being created here, right? An eternal purpose that God is making a promise to David that is still active today. And that brings us to Matthew 1. Because at this moment, the offspring of the woman of the woman that will crush the head of the serpent had not come. The nations of the world being blessed through Abraham had not happened. David's kingdom wasn't there anymore. It was demolished by the Babylonians. There was no king in Jerusalem. And here's the deal. It had been over a thousand years since God began to make promises that a Messiah is coming. Someone is coming to make it right, to make all things new. It had been over a thousand years And in Matthew 1, it had been over 400 years since God had even spoken. Think about that. There was nothing, no word from God. There was absolute silence. It was quiet. You have to wonder if you're an Israelite, where is he? Where's the Messiah? Is he coming? There was absolutely nothing. The world was still in 
darkness. The promised Messiah had not come. God's people were waiting and waiting and waiting for God. Do we have any uh, Lord of the Rings fans in here? Okay, that was more than I, I heard an amen from our pastor. Wow. <laughs> okay. Um, I love Lord of the Rings. I, watch, I have the extended editions. I watch them every year. Um, Katie loves them too, so we do it together, you know? So it's a really good time. But there's a scene in the Twin Towers uh, where Sam and Frodo, they're on their mission to their unlikely mission to save Middle Earth. And in a time of great dis- despair, surprise, Frodo starts complaining which is what he does, right? But he says, man, Sam, I can't go on anymore. And Frodo responds with this. And I thought of this as I was thinking about the Old Testament and the promised Messiah and the the people in the Old Testament. Sam says this to Frodo. He says, I know, it's all wrong. By rights, we shouldn't even be here, but we are. It's like in the great stories, Mr. Frodo, the ones that really mattered, full of darkness and danger they were, And sometimes you didn't want to know the end. Because how could the end be happy? How could the world go back to the way it was when so much bad happened? But in the end, but in the end, it's only a passing thing, this shadow. Even darkness must pass. A new day will come. And when the sun shines, it will shine out the clearer. These were the stories that stayed with you that meant something, even if you were too small to understand why. But I think, Mr. Frodo... I do understand. I know now. Folk in these stories had lots of chances of turning back, but they didn't because they were holding on to something, that there's some good in this world, and it's worth fighting for. The way Sam speaks makes me think of the heroes of the Old Testament, right? The great cloud of witnesses before us, like Abraham and David, these people that could have given up, that had their own faults, They weren't perfect, and we'll talk about that later. They weren't perfect, but they could have given up. But here's the deal. They were holding on to something. They were holding on to a promise that one day a Messiah is going to come, and he's going to make all things right. For Israel, they held on to the hope of the Messiah that was promised to Abraham, was promised to David. And here's the deal. The birth of Christ makes full the course of Israel's history and ours. Makes full the course of Israel's history and ours. It confirms the stories that every prophet, every line, everyone in the line lineage of Jesus has told. Every one of them helped bring forth the Messiah that makes his name worthy, wonderful counselor, uh, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And so knowing that Old Testament background, reading the first words of the New Testament should grip our hearts because I can guarantee it grip theirs. Here's what it says. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. Christ means Messiah. And so Matthew right here is like, boom. <laughs> you wanted a Messiah? Here he is, Jesus Christ, and he says, the son of David and the son of an Israelite, uh, the son of Abraham. If you're an Israelite, your mind is blown. You're, You're saying, this is him. This is the one we've been waiting for. This is the one we've heard about every Passover, every year. This is the 
Messiah, it would have stunned a first century audience. The New Testament begins with a verse that declares the Messiah has come. If you're in Israel, you know who the son of David is. You know who the son of Abraham is. You're waiting for this Messiah. He is the promised savior of the world. And here's that deal. When you read verse one, you go, the promise has been fulfilled. He's here. The promise that was given to us thousands of years ago. He did it. <laughs> he did it. That word genealogy, it literally means Genesis. Do you know that? It means Genesis, which means beginnings. So literally in this first verse, we have the record of a new beginning. That's cool. The record of a new beginning. Jesus is the beginning of a new creation. He's the beginning of a new humanity, the head of a new humanity. He's the better Adam, right? He's taking what humanity has broken and making it new. So let's slow down. What does the list of names mean? Why is it important? It tells us in 2019, it tells us that God has a purpose, the display of his glory. That's what this list of names is about. It's the display of his glory to the nations, that they would see his purpose, his faithfulness. And as we enter into this season, the season of Christmas, do not be fooled and consumed by what we tend to make it with the, with the hurt and the busyness and the tree and the lights and the presents, but may you take a moment to look at this list of names and go, he did it. <laughs> he came and the presence of God would fill your heart with worship because he did it. He was faithful. He was faithful to his people. Think about that. For thousands of years, he was faithful to his people and he was committed to his purpose. So why do you have the fear that you have? Let me ask you. The fear that you carry around that gives you, that, that rules your life, this anxiety, this, this, this hurt, this, this fear that controls you, what you, makes you do things that you don't want to do, where is it coming from? Because it's not coming from the word of God because the word of God shows that he is faithful and he has a purpose. So that weight that you carry, slow down. <laughs> Take a look at his word and rest and be filled with joy. That that Christmas day when you're stressed and you're anxious and you're thinking about someone you've lost, take a moment and just look at this list of names and go, he's good. <laughs> he's good. He's faithful and he has purpose. And nowhere has he proven that he will not stay committed to that purpose. So why is it important? Because it shows us who he is. He is good. He is faithful. And he is purposeful. So you see, or I see a lot of times. All right, let me ask this question. Just have a real honest moment here. How many of you have said, you know what, I want to read a gospel. I want to go to Matthew. It's the first gospel. And you've looked at the list of names and you've skipped it. Yeah, raise your hand. I want to see. It's okay. There's no shame here. Yeah, most of us have. The next time you do that, here's what I want you to do. 
And when you open that list of names, you don't skip it, but you come to it and you see God faithfulness. You don't have to read through the names, but just look at them and be reminded. You can even write it in your Bible somewhere. Be reminded that God is faithful. Because that's what that's, these, these names are about. It's the story of God's faithfulness to his people. And here's the deal. God's purpose, it's relentless. That's what we see here. Satan tried to stop this plan all throughout the story from Genesis to Revelation. He couldn't do it. He could not do it. No power can stop God from rescuing his people and bringing them near to his heart. So remember that God is faithful. He is committed to his purposes and he will fulfill his promises. So when he says that he will renew your strength like wings, on the, like on the wings of an eagle, he's, he's faithful to that. The genealogy of Matthew 1 shows the purpose of God and what he is accomplishing through Jesus. Now, here's the second part. I want to take a minute and look at the actual names, okay? Look at the actual names. So the big, big picture is that this list of names shows the purpose of God, his faithfulness, his commitment to us, his commitment to his promises. But the second part of this is I want you to show, I want to show us how God is, a, how God is at work in his people. How does God work through people? By taking a look at the actual names on this list. So I want to show you three things. The first one, if you look at the list of names, God shows that he uses outsiders, outsiders to accomplish his purpose. Now, there are five women listed in this genealogy, which in itself was weird. Like, you didn't do that with women. You didn't list them in genealogy. So that in itself makes them outsiders. And not only that, but each of these women have some kind of stain of sexual sin. Did you know that? Each of these women have some kind of stain of sin on them, which makes them an outsider. And another way it makes an outsider that we'll talk a lot about in a little bit is that four out of the five women that are listed were not Jewish. They weren't from Israel. They were Gentiles, which completely makes them an outsider. You've got Tamar, who was a Canaanite, who disguised herself as a prostitute in order to seduce Judah. You've got Rahab, who was a Canaanite prostitute, who lied to protect the Israelite spies and helped overthrow Jericho. You've got Ruth, who was a Moabite, who Moabites were known for their sexual sin, um, who moved to Israel upon the death of her husband. And you've got Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah, the Hittite. King David married Bathsheba after fathering a child by her. We'll talk about that more later. Um, fathering a child by her and killing her husband. And the fifth woman that's listed is Mary. She was Jewish. Well, you say, well, she didn't have any sexual sin. They wanted to stone her <laughs> because she was a pregnant, unmarried woman. Now, if I would have just given you a description of these women without pulling them from the Bible or telling you their names, if I would have just given you a description of these women, um, could you have guessed that they were some of Jesus' great, 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 great grandmas? No. That wouldn't be your presumption, right? Well, one mom. Mary wasn't a grandma. She was a mom. Um, but overall, you've got these women. 
And if I told you, tell me what Jesus' great-great-great-grandma was like, what would you say? Uh, she had roses in her hair. Right? She drew pictures of unicorns. When she walked, stars would just fall around her for beauty. You would say nice things is the point, right? Um, that's how you would describe her grandma. But if I told you that she was probably a prostitute, what would you say? So here's the question. Why are these names included in the lineage that leads to Christ? And hear me. For the exact same reason that my name and your name might be included in the list that leads from Christ. Why are these names listed? Because you and I are listed. Because we are all outsiders. And in his grace, he has saved us. That's why these women are included. That's why you and I are included from the list that goes from Christ. It's because he has saved us. They didn't earn the right to be included in this genealogy. God gave it to them. He gifted it to them as grace. And he saved them by his blood. And so the second part of this outsider saying is, remember, they were non-Jews. They were Gentiles, right? God and Matthew want you to remember here God's global purposes. He wants you to remember God's promise to Abraham that all, Abraham, that all peoples of the earth will be blessed. And it's exactly what we see from Genesis to Revelation, that there's a thread of God's glory among the nations in all people. So uh, I want to read to you real quick, Ephesians 2, verses 12 and 13, because Paul kind of uh, puts a tie, bow tie, bow tie, a little bow on this. Um, Ephesians 2, verse 12. Paul says this, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Here's the deal. The Jews could look to the future and bank on the promise that the Messiah is coming. The Gentiles didn't have that. No one told them that they would be included in the commonwealth. No one told them that they would be included in the, the covenant. And so the Jews literally built walls in the temple to keep the Gentiles out. You had the Holy of Holies, and then you had, uh, which only the high priest could enter. And then you had right outside of that, a little area for the priests. And then you had a little area over the wall for the Jewish men. And then you had another wall for the Jewish women. And then you had another wall, and that's where the Gentiles could go. And that's also where they put the animals, right? And so the Gentiles, they don't know, right? And Paul is saying here, those who were far off, which is a literal name for the Gentiles, those who are far off have been brought near by the blood of Jesus. That God would include them, Gentiles, in the family tree of God. And it tells us this, and Paul talks about it. Every wall of hostility that we can build, as we do this today, every wall of hostility that we can build, like the Jews did with the Gentiles, God has broken it. He has broken it. That's what the Gentiles being included in this lineage says. There is no wall dividing us anymore, dividing us and them, whoever us and them is. There's no wall because what we all have in common is the grace of Jesus Christ. And Matthew is purposely pointing out 
that this union between the Jew and the Gentile was God's plan way before Jesus was even born. That God included the nations in the family tree. And this is all of our stories. We have been saved by grace. And then a little bit later in Ephesians 2 verse 19, Paul says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus being the cornerstone, in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. That word aliens, I don't know if you've ever thought that was strange, right? So he says, um, he says, so then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints members of the household of God. That word aliens, it's not an extraterrestrial ET, right? It's, uh, it's the word para oikos. So para means by, and oikos means house. So para can mean by or um, outside. So what Paul is saying here, you are no longer by the house, or you are no longer outside the house, but you have been invited into the household of God. You're an alien. And God has invited you in. We were all strangers at one time, sitting outside of a house where a celebration was happening. Right? Have you ever felt left out of something? Like your family went to a movie or friends did a party without you. One time, Katie's family threw a birthday party for me but forgot to invite me. Hurt my feelings. Right? But we've all been left out of something. And here's the deal. God is saying, at one time, you were a stranger. You were outside the house. But God, in his grace, has called you in. There was a, for the Gentile, there were celebrations that were happening in the Jews. They had a promise, and they were outside of it. And what God has done is said, come. Come on in. It's his glory among the nations. And it's not, he's not done. He's not done bringing the gospel to the nations through us through the church, through renewal church. Matthew 24, 14. When I heard this verse for the first time, it changed my life. It says this, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony to all nations. And then the end will come. When Jesus coming back, he is coming back when all peoples, all tribes have heard the gospel. I've heard about the grace of Jesus Christ. That's when he's coming back. That's when the story is finished. When the nations hear Christ's name. So God uses outsiders. Second thing is that God uses broken people to accomplish his purpose. So I don't know if you noticed, but this list of names features a bunch of broken people, okay? Um, You've got Abraham who tried to pimp out his wife, right? Um, so that's something he did. You've got Judah, who frequently visited prostitutes. You've got David, who was a murderer and an adulterer. You've got Solomon, Solomon, who instituted pagan worship in Israel. And then you've got all these other kings. And I, the kids are here, so I cannot tell you about what they did. It's just as simple as that. (laughs) Um, There are some bad kings included in this list. And this list is a snapshot of fallen humanity and brokenness. Even the best of the list, think about this, 
the best of this list that we have is Abraham and David, right? A guy who wanted to pimp out his wife and an adulterer and a murderer. That's the best we got. But here's what it shows. Here we see the sinful responsibility of men, evil kings, evil women, evil men, living their lives in rebellion of God. And here's what we get. And I want you to hear this. In the midst of it all, God was working. God was working. In the midst of their sin, God was working in and through them. In and through them. You have God working every moment throughout history, through every evil king and evil woman to bring about the birth of his son, don't forget, God's aim is to display his glory. His aim is to redeem and to renew. And for many of you, you're there right now. You're there. You feel God rebuilding your soul, brick by brick. You were hurt by someone. You were hurt by a church. Or maybe you were hurt by your own sin. And brick by brick in this season, God is rebuilding your soul. Every moment you spend in prayer, every moment you spend in his word, every moment you spend with his people, he is rebuilding your faith. And this list shows that even though we're fallen, even though we're broken, God uses us. Because he used them to bring about the Messiah, the Savior of the world, It's mercy that God has not put on us the judgment that we deserve, but rather he is putting that judgment on Jesus who would take it for us. That's the gospel. And the last thing that God uses is history. God uses human history to accomplish his purpose. Here's the deal. History is not random, okay? It's not a bunch of coincidences. It's not. God is moving history to its appointed end. That's what's happening. God is moving history to its appointed end. Every detail in history revolves around a king who would come. Every detail in history revolves around a king who would come. And now every detail revolves around a king who has come. Think about that. It revolves around a king who has come. Empires have come and gone. Dictators have come and gone. Presidents have come and gone. Wars have come and gone. The Backstreet Boys have come and they have gone. They're trying to come back, but I don't think it's going to happen, right? Lots of things have come and gone, but you know what has remained the same? God's purposes, his faithfulness, his promises. That will never change. We can always Hold on to that. History is centered on him, the eternal son of God becoming a human and coming down himself to redeem humanity from its slavery to sin, that redemption, that life, that new life. And it is the culmination of history. It's what everything is centered around. And your personal history has a purpose. Do you know that? What God has done in your life has a purpose. From every joyful moment to every hurtful moment, it has a purpose. You may not know it yet or see it, but it has a purpose. Renewal's history, our short history, has a purpose. Every decision we make, every value we have, every aim in our vision that we have, 
It all has a purpose. Because God has a plan, and he's at work. So, Christmas. Let's go back to Christmas. It could be fun. It could be joyful. It can be hard. It can be stressful. But what is it really? So when you sit down around a fire and you're drinking hot chocolate, what is Christmas about? It's a celebration that God has stayed faithful to his people. It's a celebration that God stays committed to his purpose. It's a celebration that God stays committed to his promises. So when you sit down with your family or alone, and you remember, when you look, take a moment and look at this list and see the fulfillment of a promise, a Messiah who would come to die for us in light of the glory of God. So what's holding you back from really enjoying God? What is it? I encourage you to look at the story. Think about the story of God from Genesis to Matthew. What fears do you have? What are they based on? Because I would encourage you, the story of God is a story of hope. It's not a story of despair or depression. It's a story of hope. And in this season, I know it, you know people who have experienced it, maybe you've experienced In this season, hope can disappear really quick. And the only place you're going to find it is Christ. It's the Messiah who has come for us, full of grace and truth.